The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so welcome back again. Uh, and um, we can now move on to the next sutta. It is uh, a little bit more about the uh, uh, drawbacks of the sensory world uh, and uh, again it's still about the Buddha or the Buddha to be and his thinking before his awakening here. Uh, so it gives up some more ideas about how the Buddha did this. Uh, this particular sutta is coming up now is a sutta that I have never done on a retreat before, well certainly not here uh, at the BSV uh, and um, it is quite uh, quite interesting. It's actually this only short extract from a very long sutta, uh, uh, but it kind of talks about the developing of samadhi and how you can do that, how you need to think to enable that progress in samadhi. Uh, so this is called with the householder Tapusa from the uh, numerical discourses of the Buddha, the nines, uh, sutta number 41. Uh, so it's kind of way into the uh, sutta, somewhere kind of far away in the corner of the suttas. Uh, so one of these um, fairly, I suppose, um, you only come across this kind of suttas if you read everything that is there, essentially. Uh, so this is how it goes. Uh, at one time the Buddha was staying in the land of the Malas, uh, near the Malian town named Uruvela Kappa. Then the Buddha robed up in the morning, uh, and taking his bowl and robe, uh, he entered Ruvela Kappa for alms. Uh, then after the meal on his return from alms round, uh, he addressed Venerable Ananda. Ananda, you stay right here while I plunge deep into the great wood uh, for the day's meditation. And uh, the word plunge is a bit... Uh, <laughs> but that's kind of what sort of Pali means, but uh, anyway... And uh, the uh, idea here, this is kind of a standard thing that you see in the suttas. Uh, the Buddha walks for arms round, uh, yeah? And uh, uh, common for the Buddha to do this, it seems, which is kind of very nice. He's one of the monks who does exactly what the monks uh, do. Uh, and then he goes after the arms round, he goes into the great wood. The great wood is the Mahavana. Mahavana means uh, great forest, something like that. Uh, and this is standard pr procedure. You go in there for the days uh, meditation, right? And the kind of meditation that Buddha normally does after the meal uh, is known as the Maha Karuna meditation, uh, very commonly. Uh, and the Maha Karuna, of course, means the great compassion. Uh, and uh, this is kind of what establishes the Buddha in this uh, teaching, you know, to teach the world, to see kind of the uh, uh, suffering of people and beings everywhere. Uh, and then that kind of drives his uh, teaching agenda from the very beginning and also here. Uh, so this was a standard way of practice in that day. Uh, uh, often called the days abiding, but really abiding, of course, for the monastics in this way means the meditation practice uh, specifically here. Uh. So you go off into the great wood. And um, yes, sir, replied Ananda. Then the Buddha plunged deep into the great wood and sat down at the root of a tree for the day's meditation. And in those days they would sit down at the root of a tree, the Rukka Mula, Mula being the root, Rukka is the Pali word for a tree, 
Is that the Sinhala word as well? Rukka? Do you have a similar word? Yeah. Okay, same word. Okay, so Rukka Mula. And of course, the roots of some of these trees would be magnificent. It's not like the root of the trees you see around here. If you see a root of a real kind of um, these Indian trees, the Bodhi tree or whatever, they're like kind of overspread. The roots kind of come out in all directions. And you can go, sometimes you can go into those roots, enter the roots. And it's almost like a house inside of those roots. Some of you have probably seen some of those trees. If you come from tropical countries, you would have seen how these trees work. And that's why they would abide at the foot of a tree or the root of a tree, because the roots were like houses almost, the way they spread out. And um, then the householder Tapusa went up to the venerable Ananda bowed, sat down to one side and said to him. So the householder Tapusa, this is the same name as the first two people who took refuge in the Dhamma. Yeah, Tapusa and Balika. You see that in the Udana. Udana is like the inspired verses. And Tapusa. So maybe this Tapusa is the same. Or maybe not. Maybe Tapusa is quite a common name. I don't know. Tapusa, possibly. Is that a name these days in Sri Lanka? Anyone called Tapusa in Sri Lanka? No? Uh, maybe just in India, maybe. Tapasa. Yeah, that would be more like an ascetic. So tap, tapas. But this Tapusa is a bit different. Uh. Mm. And so this is what he says to Ananda. He says, Sir Ananda, we are lay people who enjoy sensual pleasures. We like sensual pleasures. We love them and we take joy in them. <laughs> Very honest, straightforward, no messing around. <laughs> but renunciation seems like an abyss. I have heard that in this teaching and training there are very young mendicants whose mind are eager for renunciation. They're confident, settled and decided about it. Uh, they see it as peaceful. Uh, renunciation is the dividing line between the multitude uh, and the mendicants in this teaching uh, and training. Yeah. And uh, this is basically what life usually like. Yeah, like people enjoy their sensuality uh, and of course that's to be expected. Uh, and the reason is simply because life without pleasure is meaningless. So wherever you can find pleasure, you will take pleasure in that area. And the kind of immediate pleasure in the world is, of course, the sensual pleasure. This is what is available to you. That's what's in front of your nose, dangling the carrots right there. And so you will go for the visible carrots rather than the invisible carrots that the Buddha is talking about, that no one really knows about. Do they really exist? Is there such a thing as samadhi? If you go to the Raja Bodhi Kumara Sutta, Majjhimanikaya 85, uh, uh, there's a, uh, the, uh, no, sorry, Bodhi Raja Kumara Sutta, uh, so something like that. Uh, and uh, this is uh, Prince Bodhi. And Prince Bodhi comes to the, uh, uh, comes to this novice called, what's his name again? Achira Bhatta, Achira, something like that. And he says to this novice, yeah, I have heard that there is such a thing as Samadhi. The mind goes one-pointed, uh, can you please explain to me what's going on here, what the story is? Uh, and this novice, Acharyavatta, he says, well, you know, I'm, not, I'm kind of new in this teaching. I'm not sure if I can explain to you, so maybe best to just leave it to one side. Uh, and then Prince Bodhi says, well, please, I want to know about this. You know, please say, well, say whatever you know. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, and then Acharyavatta said, okay, I'll say it to you, but, you know, don't blame me if I can't explain it to you properly. Uh, 
And so then he explains to him about samadhi here. Yeah, he doesn't say what he says, he just says that he explains. Uh, and then Prince Bodhi says, that is nonsense, that is impossible, what are you talking about? This is, no one believes that kind of uh, fairy tales about samadhi and these kind of things. Yeah, this is, we will stick to our sensual pleasures, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> and this is kind of to, to be explained, how can you believe in something that is invisible unless you have very good reason to believe it? Uh, and that is where Buddha comes up with two very famous similes. Uh, yeah, similes how to explain to someone about samadhi who doesn't really believe in these things. Uh, how can you get people interested in these things? Uh, and uh, one of those similes is the beautiful simile of the mountain. Uh, and this is the simile, and this is the sort of thing that kind of gains, kind of start to really appreciate what is going on. Uh, and the simile of the mountain is two friends walking through the forest. Uh, and then they come to this hill. Uh, and when they come to the foot of the hill, uh, one friend says to the other one, let's go to the top, check out the view, yeah, see what's going on top of the hill. The other one said, nah, I couldn't be bothered, yeah, too much hard work to walk up the hill. Yeah. So he stays at the bottom and the other one walks to the top. Yeah. And then when he walks to the top of the hill, like, top of the hill is like samadhi, yeah? you're coming, you're going above the world, you get kind of the bird's eye view of things. Yeah. So he goes to the top of the hill and says, wow, this is amazing. I can see lakes and fields and roads and rivers and villages. You know, I can see as far as kind of the horizon. Uh, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, so he shouts down to his friend, hey, you, I can see all these things. Uh, and the friend at the bottom shouts back, no, I don't believe a word of it. Uh, <laughs> it's like, what kind of friend is that? Right? It's a bit of a dodgy friend. Uh, doesn't believe a word of what he's saying. Yeah. And so then this friend at the top, he gets a bit exasperated. Eh? So he goes down to the bottom of the hill, he grabs his friend by the arm, he pulls him up the hill. Eh? This is what the Buddha is trying to do with us. Eh? He's trying to pull us up that hill. We don't want to go up that hill, it's too much hard work. Yeah, yeah? I mean, some of you are very good, you are already on that hill. Eh? But most of us, we don't want to walk up that hill. Eh? Too much hard work. Yeah? Ajahn Brahm has a beautiful simile of the worm and his lovely pile of dung. Yeah, you know that's that simile. It's exactly the same thing. The Buddha comes and wants to pull us out of the dung. Yeah. No, the dung is so nice. Yeah, nice and warm. Nice, nice. <laughs> and so we hang out to the dung, even though the other person is the deva trying to pull us out to heaven. No, no, that dung is much better than, you know, I don't believe in the fairy tales about the heavenly realms. Uh, that's a really powerful one, right? The, the, the pile of dung is actually really, really strong, yeah? but actually it does say something about the world. Uh. So anyway, back to the, the friend, the other friend comes down and pulls him up to the top of the mountain, uh, and he says to him, well, what do you see? And this fr other friend becomes a bit sheepish, yeah, oh yeah, I guess, oh, I guess you're right, yeah, <laughs> oh well, roads, villages, fields, uh, you know, rivers, all of these kind of things. Uh. And then the other friend said, well, just a second ago, we, you were at the bottom mountain, you were denying all of this, and now you're saying it exists. Uh, you know, what's, what's going on here? And he said, well, while I was at the bottom of the mountain, uh, this whole mountain was in the way. Uh, yeah, I needed to get to the top of it to get the mountain out of the way. Uh, only then can I see that reality. Uh, and of course, that mountain, uh, that mountain is the defilements of the mind, uh, the five hindrances, all the things that block us from being able to see these things. Uh, and when you come out of that uh, and you see the reality, uh, then uh, you can understand what is going on. Uh. So the Buddha needs to pull us out uh, of that lower world, uh, pull us up to something higher, uh, and then we can see what is going on. Uh. So these are uh, some of these uh, beautiful stories that uh, kind of make you 
appreciate what is going on in the world. Yeah? When you get the bird's eye view, you remove yourself from the sensual world, uh, only then can you really understand what is going on. Uh. And so until that time, you are going to enjoy sensual pleasures because that you need, we all need happiness. Life without happiness is meaningless. Uh, you cannot really live without some sort of happiness. So you need something else, something higher. Then you can gradually abandon your attachment. And what we are abandoning here is not sensual pleasures as such. What we are abandoning is the attachment and craving for sensual pleasures. And that's actually quite different. It's not the same thing. Even the arahants, even those meditators who attain jhana states, they still can enjoy sensual pleasures. Yeah, enjoy here is actually a higher kind of enjoyment. Uh, it is an enjoyment higher because it is an enjoyment where there is no craving or desire. And of course, when there, as long as there is craving and desire, your mind is always in the future somewhere. Uh, yeah, have you noticed when you're eating, uh, you're eating one spoon uh, and your mind is already on the next one? Uh, you're chewing one, your mind is already going, you're already using a spoon or fork or whatever to get the next one ready? Uh, you're never really with what is going on. We're always kind of moving on somewhere else, never really being present. And because of that, we don't really fully appreciate what we have either. It's kind of we have sensual pleasures, but we don't even appreciate them when we have them. And so, you know, in the, according to the suttas, when you really abandon that craving, that is when you enjoy these things to the max. But you don't crave for them because you have a higher pleasure called samadhi. So... Um, it seems like the abyss to people because they have no alternative. Uh, happiness is necessary. If you give up the happiness you have, uh, you need to have something else. Uh, and this is what they don't understand. That's why renunciation seems like an abyss. Uh, and this is why many people don't want to become monastics. Yeah, it seems like an abyss to become a monastic. Yeah. What are you going to do with your life? Uh, one of the um, things about being a monastic, yeah, and uh, I think sometimes lay people may not understand this, uh, is that it is important for monastics to live a secluded lifestyle. It is important not to demand too much of a monastic in terms of engagement, in terms of talking, in terms of city life. Because if you demand too much of that, you're removing the one happiness that the monastic is supposed to have, which is the happiness of meditation. If you demand continuous engagement with the world, you don't have the seclusion that makes the happiness of meditation possible. So then you live more like a layperson, but you don't really have access to the pleasures of lay life, nor do you have access to the pleasures of the monastic life. It makes it unbearable, and eventually you disrobe. Either you disrobe, or you live a dodgy monastic life. That's kind of what happens. So for that reason, it is very important that you allow the monastic community to live in a secluded way, so they can enjoy the happiness of uh, meditation or whatever it is, because that is what makes it sustainable. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't work. Uh, this is how this whole process, this is why the Buddha always praises seclusion for monastics. Uh, so, uh, yes. So then he says, there, he has heard that all of these young mendicants, yeah, whose mind are eager to renounce the sensory world, uh, they're confident and settled and decided about it. Uh, yeah? And the young mendicants, this is kind of what is rare, because when you're young, you're supposed to enjoy yourself. Uh, but these are doing the opposite. They're giving it all up, and they're confident about giving things up. And he's obviously wondering, what on earth is going on? Uh, how is this possible to kind of give these things up when you're young? Uh, and uh, seeing these things as peaceful? Uh, 
Renunciation is the dividing line between the multitude and the mendicants in this teaching and training. Yeah. So, um, uh, there you are. This is uh, Tapusa uh, going to Venerable Ananda and saying he doesn't understand renunciation. How is renunciation possible? Uh, what is the story here? Uh, and uh, Venerable Ananda says, uh, Household, we should see the Buddha about this matter. Come, let's go to the Buddha and inform him about this. As he answers, so we will remember it. Yes, sir, replied Tapusa. Then Ananda, together with Tapusa, went to the Buddha, bowed, sat down to one side, and Ananda told the Buddha what had happened. The Pali is much longer. The English is shortened down for ease of reading him. That is so true, Anna, that is so true. Before my awakening, when I was still unawakened but intent on awakening, you can see how every sutta begins in the same way because I have deliberately chosen those suttas would have that particular phrase in them. <laughs> I too thought uh, renunciation is good, seclusion is good. But my mind wasn't eager for renunciation. It wasn't confident, settled, and decided about it. I didn't see it as peaceful. Or I did see it as peaceful. I'm not sure about that. Um, yeah, so before his awakening, the Buddha to be, he had some idea that renunciation is good. And seclusion is good. You will see here that renunciation and seclusion are almost used as... Um, as uh, syn uh, synonyms, almost used synonymously here. Yeah. Yeah, because seclusion can only really happen when you renounce. Because seclusion means seclusion from the sensory world. Uh, so renunciation and seclusion always go together. So when you start to read the suttas, you find that these words are used everywhere. They are so common. Uh, you know, you don't really see this unless you actually pay particular notice of it. Uh, and it's there, seclusion, the withdrawal from society, withdrawal from the things around you. It's everywhere in the suttas, and it implies renunciation. So you see these things as good. Yeah? We all kind of have some appreciation of what is going on. But seeing it as good may not be sufficient. Seeing it as peaceful may not be sufficient. You have to see it as in a full and complete way, not in a partial way. And this is the problem here. So the Buddha to be, he goes forth, uh, but doesn't still doesn't yet have the full appreciation of what is going on here. So, uh, yeah, and this is what he says then about he's not confident, settled, and decided about it. Uh, this is like the mind leaping towards renunciation. Uh, when the mind leaps towards it because it is interested in it, because it knows that this is where it should be going, uh, then it's easy, uh, and that is where you enter deep samadhi as a consequence. Then I thought, and this is the typical way for the Buddha to think, what is the cause? What is the reason why my mind isn't eager for renunciation, not confident and settled and decided about it? Why don't I see it as peaceful? This is kind of the classical way for the Buddha to think, always looking for causes and conditions, understanding causality. Everything in Buddhism is about causality. Yeah, everything has a cause. Nothing is independent of causes. Uh, this is a just um, the, the way the idea of anatta non-self works. Yeah, everything is built up out of cause and conditions. Uh, 
Then I thought, uh, I haven't seen the drawbacks uh, of sensual pleasures, uh, and so I haven't cultivated that. Uh, I haven't realized the benefits of renunciation, uh, and so I haven't cultivated that. Uh, that is why my mind isn't eager for renunciation, not confident, settled, and decided about it. Uh, and it is why I don't see it as peaceful. Uh, so, in other words, his view is not yet straight enough. He's not seeing things fully according to reality. Uh, yeah, the drawback or the danger, this is the adinava, this uh, word we find in the suttas, uh, uh, has not really con- sufficiently reflected upon it uh, to make it really sink in in a very deep way. Uh, yeah, they were talked a lot about the drawbacks of sensual pleasures uh, already. Uh, and also, you haven't... Uh, realize the benefit of renunciation. Uh, giving these things up, it gives you access to a much, much deeper happiness. Uh, that is one of the main benefits uh, to the point where you're no longer interested in those sensual pleasures. Uh, you give up that craving. Uh, that's kind of the point here. Uh. So renunciation is not something terrible. Uh. Renunciation is something very beautiful if you do it in the right way because it takes you to a deeper place. Uh. And many of you will already have some idea of what that means. Uh. I know many of you quite well, and I know that some of you get very nice meditation. And that means that already you have some, not the full access maybe, or the full understanding, but you have some idea what happens when we give up that world of the five senses. And you will know how powerful it is. You will know what a nuisance the five senses are. How much information always... Okay. Almost sneezing, but not quite. So almost how much information comes in and disturbs us through those five senses. Uh, yeah, just closing your eyes can often be beautiful because so much information comes in through the eyes. Uh, and uh, so you have an idea of that. So you need to cultivate that. You need to reflect on that. Bring it to mind. Uh, and remind yourself again and again of the downside of the five sense world. Uh, and as you do this, you will go deeper in on this path of uh, giving these things up. Uh, and then uh, you get more access to these things. You give up more. And it kind of has this gradual snowball effect rolling on by itself. Uh, so it is not as if you are a layperson, you can't do this. Of course you can do this. Uh, it just, uh, you know, it is a bit more uh, um, involved perhaps, uh, a bit more difficult. It also depends on how you live your lay life. Uh, there are lay people who live like monastics uh, in this world. Uh, yeah, and it's kind of very inspiring to see that. Uh, and, uh, and then in that case, you can say the dividing line between layperson and monastic is almost erased. It's not clear anymore, you know, what the dividing line is in a sense. Uh, so uh, it can be done. Uh, and you just have to kind of uh, keep on cultivating. Remember the benefit of renunciation. Uh, peace, happiness, joy, meaning of life. Uh, meaning is one of the most important things in the world. When you have a sense of meaning, a purpose, a real goal, a real aim, uh, it makes life incredibly Meaningful. When you have meaning, it makes life meaningful. Okay, it's a bit of a, not, not the best sentence in the world, but anyway, you get an idea of what, what that means. So then, uh, he says, uh, was, um, okay, so his mind, he doesn't see it as peaceful. Then I thought, uh, suppose that seeing the drawbacks of sensual pleasures, uh, I were to cultivate that. Uh, and suppose that realizing the benefit of renunciation, uh, I were to develop that. Uh, 
It's possible that my mind would be eager for, for renunciation. It would be confident, settled and decided about it. Uh, and I would see it as peaceful. Uh, yeah, so you develop these things, you see the drawback of sensual pleasures, you understand the benefits of renunciation. One of the great benefits of renunciation that I did not mention uh, is that your mind becomes clear. Uh, you see what is going on. You are ready for insight. You have developed those factors that make insight into reality possible. Uh, as long as you're attached to sensual pleasures, you are not going to be able to see anything clearly. You have to abandon that attachment 100% before insight, really deep insight, becomes possible. That is a very, very important point. And this is one of the things the Buddha sees on the night of his awakening. Yeah, when he sees that the mind now is fully pure, he attains all the jhana states, then he turns the mind towards the tevija, the three insights. And then, of course, he knows from then on that that is the path. The jhanas are the required thing, together with the right view, to make that breakthrough possible. And so then he knows that path. It is the purity of mind that is required. It happens through renunciation. Actually, not really renouncing anything. You're getting something more. You kind of it's a it's a word that maybe the Pali just means absence of five senses. In English, it sounds it sounds kind of a bit scary, the word renunciation. And so after some time, I saw the drawback in sensual pleasures and cultivated that. And I realized the benefits of renunciation and I developed that. Then my mind was eager for renunciation. It was confident, settled and decided about it. I saw it as peaceful. Yeah, you're confident, settled, and decided about it. The mind leaps towards renunciation. The mind leaps toward giving up the five-sense world. It wants to do it. And when the mind wants to do it, then of course it's going to be easy. The mind moves in that direction. And then what happens? Quite secluded from the sensory world, secluded from unskillful qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, the first absorption, which has rapture and bliss born of seclusion uh, while placing the mind and keeping it connected. Uh. So this is what happens when you really give up the five sense world completely. Uh, you enter the jhana states. Uh. And uh, it is difficult to do that uh, because uh, giving up that five sense world completely means giving up access to that world uh, it means that you can no longer see, even if you want to see. It's like you're voluntarily going blind and deaf at the same time. That's difficult, right? Voluntarily going blind and deaf. You have to actually really overcome any attachment to that world. If you really overcome that, you don't mind being blind. You don't mind being deaf because actually the five senses are becoming irrelevant to you. That is why it is hard. Because these things we hold on to pretty firmly. Going blind and deaf doesn't sound like an attractive proposition to most people. But to the deep meditator, it is attractive, at least for a while. But you don't really know at this point it's only for a while. You go into this state, it could be forever. So you really have to be ready to renounce it completely. Let's forget about place in the mind and keeping it connected for a while. This is just a kind of specialist expression translated by Bhante Sujato in this way. Uh, but uh, then he says, while I was in that meditation, uh, perceptions and attentions accompanied by the five sense world beset me. Beset is bad, right? Beset is like the kind of, um, you know, 
doing bad things to you. And that was an affliction for me. Suppose a happy person were to experience pain. That would be affliction for them. In the same way, when I was... Uh, when uh, perceptions and attentions accompanied by sensual pleasure beset me, that was an affliction for me. Yeah. So once you have attained the deep samadhis, uh, and you come out again and you start experiencing the five senses, uh, you experience the five senses as pain, uh, as an affliction, uh, as a problem. You don't really want to have anything to do with them. Uh, it is not sensual pleasures or, or craving that you experience. It is actually just the mere fact of the five senses, uh, which is an affliction. Uh, all this information, all this diversity, uh, all the reduction in bliss and peace that comes as a consequence of that, uh, it is painful in comparison. Uh, we don't even know this because uh, we're so used to the five sense world. This is why it is so hard to understand. Uh, yeah, This is really... Uh, entering a different reality when you give up the five senses and enter the world of samadhi. This is when you start to understand the nature of happiness in a deep way. Uh, until this point, we haven't really understood it. Uh, why? Because we have been so immersed in that experience of the five senses, uh, we cannot have any. We don't have any perspective on what's going on. Uh. So, uh, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> do you agree or disagree? If you disagree, you can uh, say so. Ah, this is not true. The Buddha, yeah, no, the Buddha is just exaggerating. I don't know what you. <laughs> but uh, if you have any questions about this, please you can uh, uh, write it down for later on today. Yeah. Oh well. Um. So that is the first jhana and why, how you attain the first jhana, how you overcome the five sense world, the craving and attachment for it. But you don't stop there. Then, I'm not going to talk about this in detail, let's very quickly go through it. Uh, then, uh, at that point, you realize that the first jhana itself has certain drawbacks. Uh, and that is the movement of the mind. Uh, and then you you reflect on that drawback in the same way and then when you reflect on that drawback in the same way then eventually the mind becomes confident and settled and decided about the second jhana and then you enter the second jhana and then you continue like that and then you think the second jhana has certain drawbacks you go to the third jhana and then uh, you, uh, third jhana has certain drawbacks you go to the fourth jhana huh? and you continue like that until you reach a state called sanya vidaita niroda which in Pali language means the cessation of perception and feeling. Yeah? And that is where you come to the end of this path. Uh, because uh, cessation of perception and feeling means there's nothing left to cease. Everything is gone. Uh, so you can't really go beyond that. Uh, and that is where this path leads. That is the highest happiness according to the Buddha. Uh, cessation of perception and feeling. When feeling ceases, uh, that is the highest happiness. Uh, how is that possible? How can, the, how can the end of feeling be the highest happiness? Uh, isn't that kind of weird? Uh, that's what the Buddha says in the suttas. There's a sutta called the Bahu Vedaniya, Bahu Vedaniya Sutta. The many kinds of feeling of Bahu Vedana Sutta or whatever. Uh, Majjhima Manikai 59 I think it is. Uh, and where the Buddha goes through the different kinds of feelings. Yeah, starting with sensual, 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 sensual pleasures. Uh, going up to the first jhana, going all the way to the very end. Ending up with a cessation of perception and feeling here. Yeah. And he says that every stage you t take uh, leads to greater happiness. The highest happiness is the ending of feeling itself. Uh, 
And this is one of those conundrums of Buddhism, one of those things that is so hard to understand, uh, that the ending is actually the highest kind of happiness. Uh, when something is absent, it's the absence of something that is really extremely, extremely joyful. Uh, and uh, as the Venerable Sariputta says elsewhere in the suttas, he says that it is the very fact of absence that makes that state the highest kind of happiness. So feeling, just the very fact that you feel, is actually negative. Avoiding a feeling is better than feeling. That's what the Buddha is saying here. So this is what makes the Buddha's teaching so profound, because the vast majority of people, they search for happy feelings one way or another. The Buddha is the only one who says, abandon all feelings, forget about it all, give it all up. That is the highest happiness. This is the real emptiness, the real kind of ending, the real Nibbana, extinguishment of everything. Siti Bhutto. Siddhi Bhutto is my favorite name for a monk. No monk has still yet taken up that name. Uh, Siddhi Bhutto means the cool one. Uh. Wouldn't that be nice to be called the cool one as a monk? It has a kind of nice double, nice double meaning. The coolness of Nibbana combined with a more ordinary kind of coolness. Uh. So, um, anyway, so that's that sutta. I'm not going to need, no need to go into all the details for the rest. Uh, but that gives an idea of the benefits of the path. So that is all about right view. Yeah, I'm, I, at least that's the angle uh, I used to focus from to understand these suttas, from the point of view of, of right view. And uh, the next sutta is also about right view. And um, the next sutta is the shorter discourse on the mass of suffering here. And uh, again, it is about uh, the idea of uh, abandoning those things that stand in the way of meditation. Yeah? Trying to understand what is suffering in the world, uh, abandoning that, uh, and then leaning the mind towards meditation practice. Uh, so uh, again, not very kind of, you know, this one of these typical kind of Buddhist uh, themes. Uh, uh, mass of suffering sounds like Buddhism, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> So this is Majjhima number 14, the middle length saying is number 14. Uh, and this is how it goes. Uh, so I have heard, at one time the Buddha was staying in the land of the Sakyans, uh, at Kapilavattu in the Banyan Tree Monastery. Uh, so these, is, these are the relations of the Buddha, they are the Sakyans, he came from the Sakyan clan. Uh, Kapilavattu was the main town of the Sakyans, a pretty, pretty small place. Uh, uh, far away, and the, the, um, uh, this place still exists in the present day. There was found a great hoard of uh, coins in a certain place, and they were all marked with Kapilavattu on them. So that seems to be pretty sure that that is the place where the Kapilavattu was. Uh, and the main monastery there was called the, the Banyan Tree Monastery, the Nigrodharama. Nigroda is the Banyan Tree in uh, Pali and perhaps Sinhala, I don't know. Um, so... Um, that is where the Buddha was staying. Occasionally, he didn't visit his relatives all that often, but occasionally he was there. Then Mahanama the Sakyan went up to the Buddha, bowed, sat down to one side, and said to him. So Mahanama is a cousin of the Buddha. Yeah, and uh, he was one of the people who stayed in lay life, uh, and he was a very successful lay person in ter from Dhamma perspective. He had deep meditation and good insight and all of these kind of things. Uh, uh, but he never became a monk. Yeah. So why didn't he become a monk yeah, if he was so successful? Yeah? And I'll tell you the reason why he didn't become a monk. The reason is found in one of the stories of the Vinaya Pitaka. 
And this was Mahanama and Anuruddha. Anuruddha is also a cousin of the Buddha, right? And they were brothers, and they were living at home. And so they were still young. The Buddha had gone forth recently, and everyone was saying, wow, every family has one son at least who goes forth, and maybe a daughter as well who goes forth and becomes an ascetic. What about our family? No one has gone forth. We should also go forth. And uh, then Anuruddha says to Mahanama, well, you know, I have been so, my upbringing has been so cushy. I've been looked after. I never had any experience of pain or suffering, you know. You know the famous story of the nutty cakes? You know the nutty cake story? One of Ajahn Brahm's stories, nutty cake story. Nutty cake story is the story of um, Anuruddha. Whenever he went to his mum and he asked for a cake, there was always a cake available for him. Yeah, His upbringing was so you know, servants and everyone looking after him. Yeah, we had never experienced any, any, any pain whatsoever. Cake was always available until one day it was not. And his mother would say to tell him, nutty cake. Nutty means there is no, yeah? There is no cake. Nutty cake. And he says, yes, please, I have a nutty cake. <laughs> he thought it was a name of a cake. He had never heard the word nutty before. There is no. It didn't exist in his vocabulary. So please give me the nutty cake. So that was kind of his upbringing, yeah, his life. Uh, and he was kind of, he was really, really spoiled, basically. That's kind of the reality of it. Uh, and so he says to Mahanama, yeah, you know, I've been brought up in this, but there's no way I can do the ascetic life. You go forth, uh, I'll stay in the home life and continue eating the nutty cakes. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, Mahanama said, well, okay, that's fine, but I will have to teach you about how to live the household life, right? You don't know anything about it because you have, been, you, you have kind of been so spoiled, so I had to teach you what you have to do. Huh? And so Andrew said, okay, well, teach me then. And so Mahanama says to him, well, you know, when the spring comes, you have to go out and till the fields, right? And after tilling them and making all the furrows, you have to put seeds into the field. And after the seeds are put into the field, then you have to let the water in to irrigate the fields, and after you have irrigated, you have to drain the fields, yeah, because there's too much water, it doesn't work either. And after the field are nice and wet, you have to weed them, get all the weeds out, so you kind of only have left with the, uh, you know, with a real crop. And then when the crop ripens, you have to uh, reap the harvest, yeah. And when you have reaped the harvest, you have to thrash these things to get all the chaff and all the, all the, uh, you know, the um, straws off, so left with only the pure grain. And then you have to winnow it, winnow it to get rid of all the kind of loose stuff. And then you have to put it into a silo for storage, yeah, for the next year. And then as soon as you, pretty much as soon as you got into storage, the next season begins. Yeah, and then you have to start from scratch again. And then he says, well, you know, our, then Anurud says, well, is there no end to this work? And he says, <laughs> and, and he says, well, actually, no, because, you know, our fa fathers and grandfathers, you know, while they were going through this cycle, they all died, uh, yeah, while they were still doing these things. Uh. And then Aruda says, well, in that case, uh, I will go forth, you stay the home life. Uh. <laughs> he was a real scallywag. So he... So this, so this is how Mahanama ended up in the household life while Anuruddha became, went forth. And Anuruddha turned out to become a very good monk. Yeah, we know that from the suttas. Uh, he had all the kind of clairvoyance and the psychic powers and all these kind of things. Uh, but that is the story of uh, Anuruddha and Mahanama. So this is why Mahanama is here talking to the Buddha. So um, um, this is what he says to the Buddha. For a long time, sir, uh, I have understood 
You're teaching like this. Greed, hate and delusion are corruptions of the mind. Despite understanding this, sometimes my mind is occupied by thoughts of greed, hate and delusion. I wonder what qualities remain in me that I have such thoughts. So uh, he has insight. For a long time he has understood the teaching. Uh, this seems to be referring to stream entry. At least there's a stream entry, maybe a once returned according to some commentaries. Uh, and so he understands the problem. And uh, uh, despite understanding the problem, uh, his mind is still occupied by these thoughts, yeah, overwhelmed by these thoughts. Uh, why is this the case? Mahanama, there is a quality that remains in you that makes you have such thoughts. For if you had given up that quality, you would not still be living at home and enjoying sensual pleasures. But because you haven't given up that quality, you are still living at home and enjoying sensual pleasures. So here, the first thing that's interesting here is that greed, hate and delusion, these are qualities in the mind that are only there because there's something you haven't given up. Yeah, the, uh, the, the corollary of that or the kind of outcome of that is that if you do overcome that underlying quality, which is the sense of self and all that, you will not have greed, hatred and delusion. Uh, sometimes you hear monastics who say that actually you still have greed, hatred and delusion after you become an arahant, but this is kind of the direct anti-teaching to that and it's everywhere in the suttas. Uh, so you don't have these things anymore, they're not, no longer there. Uh, sensual pleasures uh, give little gratification uh, and much suffering and distress. Uh, they are all the more full of drawbacks. Uh, even though a noble disciple has clearly seen this with right wisdom, uh, so long as they don't achieve a rapture and bliss uh, that is apart from sensual pleasures and, uns and unskillful qualities uh, or something even more peaceful than that, uh, they might still return to sensual pleasures. Uh, but when they do achieve that rapture and bliss, or something more peaceful than that, uh, they will not return to sensual pleasures. Uh, so this is the thing that they haven't abandoned or haven't achieved. Uh, they haven't achieved that uh, bliss free of sensual pleasures. This is the jhana states that he is referring to here. Uh, yeah, this is the bliss apart from sensual pleasures. And what is more happy than that is usually considered the immaterial attainments or perhaps the higher jhanas. It's hard to really know exactly what it refers to. Huh? And so the idea here is that even you are a noble person, huh? even if you are a stream enter, huh? you will return to the sensual pleasures of the world if you haven't got a higher kind of happiness. Huh? And uh, this is very important uh, because uh, sometimes people think that once you attain a jhana once or twice, that's it, you are kind of on the right track. But no, these things decline uh, and they disappear again after a while and you go back into the world of the five senses. Uh, and sometimes you can see that in, uh, you know, because I'm most, mostly familiar with monastics uh, and I've seen in my life many, several occasions of monastics who have very deep meditation. Uh, quite possibly jhana experiences. Uh, and then over the years they deteriorate, they go backwards, uh, and eventually they end up disrobing her. Uh. That's kind of extraordinary. Usually these are the things that stop you from disrobing her, uh, and actually hinder that whole thing from happening. Uh. But uh, unless you keep it going, uh, unless you stop getting too involved in the world, this is the problem with getting too involved in the world, uh, it draws you back into the world, uh, it draws you back into that realm where you're no longer able to 
keep that distance from the sensual pleasures and sensory things of the world. So this is the problem for Mahanama, because he's a householder, he's very busy, very hard to keep up your meditations. So of course, he's going to have that uh, attraction to sensual pleasures and, attract, and all the underlying defilements being there as a consequence. So you have to keep it up, uh, regularly meditate, and eventually gain the insights that end these things once and for all. Uh. So, the Buddha carries on, and now we get the before my awakening again. As I said, every sutta, not every sutta, but most sutta have that. Uh, before my, my awakening, when I was still unawakened, but intent on awakening, uh, I too clearly saw with right wisdom that sensual pleasures give little gratification and much suffering and distress, and they are all the more full of drawbacks. But so long as I didn't achieve the rapture and bliss that are apart from sensual pleasures and unskillful qualities, or something even more peaceful than that, I didn't announce that I would not return to sensual pleasures. But when I did achieve that rapture and bliss, or something more peaceful than that, I announced that I would not return to sensual pleasures. So uh, you see things clearly, uh, uh, and you also attain these qualities. Uh, and then uh, with the Buddha to be, obviously he was on the highway to awakening, uh, he could say that I'm not going to go back to those things again uh, once he achieved that. Uh, uh, but this does not mean you cannot lose it. It's just that in the case of the Buddha-to-be, he was kind of heading towards something higher. Uh, so now we're going to look at the gratification and the drawbacks uh, of sensual pleasures, yeah, to understand what these things are about. Uh, and the gratification is kind of obvious. We know that already. What is the gratification of sensual pleasures? Uh, there are these five kinds of sensual stimulation, uh, what five? Sights known by the eye that are likable, desirable, agreeable, pleasant, sensual, and arousing. Yeah. Sounds known by the ear, smells known by the nose, taste known by the tongue, touches known by the body that are likable, desirable, agreeable, pleasant, sensual, and arousing. Yeah. These are the five kinds of sensual stimulation. Yeah. The pleasure and happiness that arises from these kind, five kinds of sensual stimulation. This is the gratification of sensual pleasures. So, uh, that's kind of obvious, right? We know all about this already. We try to enjoy this as much as we can. Entertainment, music, nice perfume, beautiful food, a nice partner in life, all of these kind of things. Yeah, this is kind of what we live for to a large extent most people in the world anyway. Yeah. But what are the drawbacks uh, of sensual pleasures? Uh, this is what we have to contemplate. We know the gratification. What we don't understand is the drawbacks. Uh, it's when a gentleman, uh, or maybe a gentlewoman, uh, earns a living by means such as computing. Yeah. <laughs> This is very topical, isn't it? It's kind of it's the Buddha was looking into the future, I think, yeah, and he was. <laughs> I think what he means is kind of computing means also calculating, right? So that's kind of what it means, really. Computing, accounting, calculating, farming, trade, raising cattle, archery, government service, or one of the professions. But they must face cold and heat. Being hurt by the touch of flies, mosquitoes, the wind, the sun, and reptiles, uh, and risking death uh, from hunger and thirst. Uh, 
This is the drawback of sensual pleasures apparent in this very life, a mass of suffering caused by sensual pleasures. And this is, may seem like small things, yeah, but in the kind of in our daily activities, there are so many things that are irritating us. If you have to be outdoors, yeah, you have uh, um, always the little things, little. Uh, you know, when you have that mosquito at night coming into your room, you can't fall asleep because of one little mosquito. Then you know the, how irritating the mosquitoes are. You have flies crawling in your eyes and nose. That's kind of a, one of the really bad things about Western Australia. Too many flies over there. Yeah. They kind of this no flies on me, mate. That doesn't work in Western Australia. There's full, lots of flies on you all the time. Are you? Uh, and so there are all of these irritations in the world, yeah? And uh, when you start to count them and look at them, actually there's a lot. Uh, even when you sit on your desk and you do your computer work, uh, yeah, you have to move all the time because the body is never really comfortable for very long at all. Uh, and you have to move and shift and uh, all of these kind of things. Uh. Or simple things like cold and heat, right? Is the temperature ever exactly right? Very rarely, yeah. Uh. Temperature is always a bit too now. It's, for me now, it's a bit too hot already here in this room. I don't know about for you, but maybe for some of you, it's too cold. For me, it's too hot, and it's very rarely that it is exactly really perfectly right. Except when you start to close your eyes and you're watching the breath, the body disappears. Okay, then it starts to get nice. Apart from that, never really quite right, and we barely notice these irritations of the body because we're so used to them. Barely notice them until. You let go of the body uh, until you go into deep meditation uh, and you start to experience for the first time what it means uh, to let go of the body. Then you understand how irritating the body is. Uh. If you think other people are irritating, you haven't seen nothing yet. The body, that's a big irritation in the world. Uh. And so all of these things, the fact that we have to live in the world, the fact that we have to function in the world, that we have to make a living, means that we have to get into contact with all of these problems. Uh, that's just the way it is. It was much worse at the time of the Buddha. These days we have air conditioners, we have filters, we have all kinds of things trying to keep things out, uh, and yet it is always uncertain to some extent. Uh, then you have the idea of hunger and thirst, uh, right? Uh, and uh, Usually these days people kind of eat and drink whenever they want, uh, but uh, sometimes you will experience hunger and thirst. This is part of what it means to have a body. Uh, and sometimes it may get bad. Sometimes you read in the paper people dying of hunger in the present world. Still today, even though we have such incredible abundance here in Australia, there are places in the world where people die of hunger. We have a distribution problem with our food. Uh, yeah, Some people have too much. We throw out so much food in the society. Uh, and then there are people around the world who die. It's kind of crazy how this world works, or rather doesn't work. Uh, and uh, so sometimes you wonder... Uh, Will there be a time when we also will have to starve? Will we be hungry? We have been there in the past. Maybe it will happen again in the future. You look at the way the world is going sometimes, it kind of seems to be more, everything is more difficult. Food prices going up everywhere. Are they going up in Australia as well? They are, okay. Thanks, Frank, for the latest news. We are not really up on these things. So, but, so this is... This is the problem, uh, yeah? All of this external world around us being so uncertain, we always have to deal with living in this world, and it's actually quite irritating here. Yeah? 
Wind and sun, right? I always tell, told when I go to Newbury, oh, the wind here is very cold. Everyone says this all the time. Oh, the wind here, whoa, really cold. Uh, so be careful there. And that's, that's when, I, when this suit kind of comes to mind. Actually, it doesn't. I'm just making it up now, but anyway. So um, this, is the, this is the first drawback. So let's go on to the next one. That gentleman or gentlewoman might try hard, strive and make an effort, but fail to earn any money. If this happens, they sorrow, wail, and lament, beating their breasts and falling into confusion, saying, Oh, my hard work is wasted, my effort is fruitless. This too is a drawback of sensual pleasures apparent in this very life, a mass of suffering caused by sensual pleasures. So um, it is true, right? Sometimes we work really hard. Our hard work is not appreciated. We don't get the salary that we think we deserve. We don't get the promotion that we want to do. And we work and work and work and our business goes bankrupt even though we work incredibly hard. We have some very close disciples in Perth who uh, they, they, one of the daughters in the family, she started a pharmacy. And it turned out that that pharmacy, one of the, her employees was crooked. Uh, was really a thief, basically, stole millions of dollars uh, out of that pharmacy, right? Uh, and she could never regain it. Now that person is in jail because they were kind of, they were imprisoned for it because it was a very serious crime. Uh, but uh, the money was gone, couldn't get it back. Millions of dollars, right? Uh, and you can see the whole family was distraught about this uh, because they all had helped her, all had given money, yeah? So everyone was losing out because of these things. Uh, and uh, very often in life, uh, we don't feel appreciated for what we do. Huh? Very often we don't feel that we get the fair share of what is actually supposed to go around to everyone. Huh? Even though you work really hard, even though you try your very best, uh, it is uncertain what the results will be of your effort. Uh, you never know uh, if it's going to work out or not. Uh, because in the world uh, there are so many conditions that contribute to the outcome. Your effort is only one condition. Many other things also contribute to that. The result is always uncertain. So you should never work hard with the expectations that you will be successful. You just have no idea whether you're going to be successful or not. The only success you can have is on the spiritual path. That is guaranteed if you practice in the right way. So you fail to make a living. Then that gentleman might try hard, strive and make an effort and succeed in earning money. So yay, succeeding. But they experience pain and sadness when they try to protect it. Thinking, how can I prevent my wealth from being taken by the rulers? The kings, I think, is the, is the word here, yeah. Or the government, I suppose, or whatever. Or bandits, consumed by fires, swept away by flood, taken by unloved heirs. <laughs> That's how it is sometimes, isn't it? And even though they protect it and ward it, rulers do take it, bandits do take it, fire does consume it, the flood does sweep it away, and unloved heirs take it away as well. They sorrow and wail and lament, beating their breast and falling into confusion. What used to be mine is gone. This too is a drawback of sensual pleasures, apparent in this very life, a mass of suffering caused by sensual pleasures. These days you have like Nigerian, Nigerian scams on the internet, right? That's kind of the equivalent of these things. And you hear about people falling for these scams all the time. Yeah, oh no, I lost $100,000 and now I'm poor and broke and I don't know how to look after myself in my old age. This is kind of the modern version of this. 
or you just invest on the stock market, but you don't really know what you're doing, and so you lose all your money on the stock market. Uh, it, it can happen so easily that we lose the wealth that we have accumulated uh, unless we are careful with it. And then also you have all the trouble in protecting these things, right? Uh, because when you, ha- are, you want, when you have whatever wealth you have, whether it's a lot or little, you want to protect it. Uh, you want to keep it. You want to have your house. Uh, and that very fact that you have to protect it, that's also painful. Yeah, looking after it, worrying about it. Uh, do I have enough locks on my door? Uh, are the locks working properly? Does anyone else have the key here? Etc., etc. There's always going to be a worry there. Uh, this is why, one of the reasons why the monastic life has less worries. Uh, you can steal anything from me uh, except my laptop. Uh, then. <laughs> <laughs> It's not actually even my laptop, to be honest. It belongs to Bodhinyana Monastery, but it's kind of, uh, I must admit, I'm a little bit attached to that laptop. That's a bit of a concern. I don't know, I don't know. We're going to have to have a chat about this later. You have to give me some advice on this one, because uh, I have. Uh, <coughs> okay. Um, let's just finish this suit. I might take five minutes more than usual here. Um, furthermore, for the sake of sensual pleasures, kings fight with kings. Uh, aristocrats fight with aristocrats. Brahmins fight with Brahmins and householders fight with householders. Uh, mother fights with her child, the child with the mother, father with child, child with father. Brother fights with brother, brother with sister, sister with brother, friend with friend. Uh, and on and on and on it goes, right? There's no end to the fighting here. Once they've started quarreling, arguing, and disputing, they attack each other with fists, stones, rods, and swords, resulting in death or death-like suffering. That too is a drawback in sensual pleasures apparent in this very life, a mass of suffering caused by sensual pleasures. Yes? This is what life is like. Yeah, we fight with each other over the things in this world. Uh, happens all the time. Uh, the most obvious one is the inheritance uh, from your parents. Uh, yeah, children fight over the inheritance. This is such a common thing in the world. Uh, it happens all the time. Uh, but not just that, but you have the kind of all the wars in our society. is often wars over resources. Wars over resources are essentially about sensual pleasures. Uh, and uh, so and so it goes on and on and on. We argue in the family, you know, just over small little things. Which TV channel are we going to have on? Yeah, this is kind of used to be the classic argument before everyone had the computer and used the computer. But in the old days, you're kind of fighting over who's going to hold the remote control for the TV yeah, and decide what you're going to watch. For those of you over a certain age, would remember that. Is that still the case? I don't know if it happens anymore. But anyway, I haven't really, not sure how that works now. But um, and so little things, uh, but they can sometimes lead to arguments, uh, terrible arguments, because our priorities are all wrong. Uh, we prioritize little tiny pleasures in life uh, over real peace and real happiness and real contentment. Uh, so much of the fighting in the world, almost all the fighting in the world, almost all the arguments in the world, violence, wars, uh, almost everything is somehow rooted in the five sense world. Uh, almost everything here. Uh, and so once you turn on the TV or whatever, or you read the news and you see all the problems in the world, that is the reason, uh, basically. So it is a very, very significant problem. Uh, it's a very massive downside. Uh. Furthermore, 
for the sake of sensual pleasures, they don their sword and shield, fasten their bow and arrows, and plunge into a battle massed on both sides, with arrows and spears flying and swords flashing. It's very poetic, isn't it? <laughs> there they are struck with arrows and spears, and the heads are chopped off, resulting in death or death-like pain. I think if you have your head chopped off, it's a bit more than death-like pain. But anyway... <laughs> This too is a drawback of sensual pleasures apparent in this very life, a mass of suffering caused by sensual pleasures. And you can see the little dots there because then the sutta carries on with all kinds of things after that, uh, with tortures and all kinds of stuff. And uh, I thought that wasn't so relevant, so I left it out. Um, yeah. Furthermore, for the sake of sensual pleasures, they conduct themselves badly by way of body, speech and mind. Yeah, this is the problem. This is one of the biggest problems of sensual pleasures, is that through that process of acquiring and safeguarding and looking after the sensual objects in our life, in the process of doing that, because we think they are so important, we are willing to compromise our morality. We are willing to do bad things. We're willing to break our five precepts and much worse than that. Sensual pleasures are intoxicating. We are attached to them, and because of that attachment, uh, we're willing to do terrible things uh, in the pursuit of these things, uh, even to the point of killing other people. Uh, then you make really bad karma. Yeah, this is the problem with these things. They are really they drive you astray down the wrong path. Uh, this is why it is so important to have a spiritual life to guide you. You don't allow that intoxication with the sensual pleasures to really lead you astray in a major way. So you misconduct yourself by body, speech and mind. And when their body breaks up after death, they are reborn in a place of loss, a bad place, the underworld and hell. This is the drawback. This is a big drawback yeah, of sensual pleasures to do with lives to come. Uh, a mass of suffering caused by sensual pleasures. And this is like the uh, ultimate, uh, yeah, the fire, even though sensual pleasures in this very life can be painful enough. Uh, the problem really is the long-term consequences. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the idea of rebirth is actually right view. If you don't believe in rebirth, this whole last paragraph doesn't make any sense at all. This is why rebirth really matters, because it opens up the potential for suffering, the potential for problems, in a way that you cannot fathom if you don't believe in rebirth. And this is what has happened to us so many times. I can guarantee you that if you carry on in the sensory realm, carry on enjoying the sensual pleasures of the world, holding out in that realm, every one of us will go down that path eventually, because this is the nature of these things. We get intoxicated, we get driven, we go astray, we haven't got the Buddha's teaching to support us. And then we do make the same mistake, as everyone must do eventually, because the conditioning behind us is so strong, it drives us down the wrong way here. Anyway, so that is another aspect of right view. I have good news for you. This is the last sutta on right view as such. And from now on, we're going to look more at the path of practice. Of course, everything at the end of the day is about right view one way or another. So it'll still be more about right view. But now we're going to go into the other factors of the Noble Eightfold Path and to see how the Buddha to be practiced those factors as well. But that is 
all for now. So uh, please carry on enjoying yourself. Uh, and there will be some interviews at 4 o'clock. And we'll see you back again at 6.30 this evening here. Yeah.